Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, welcome back after our Thanksgiving break. We finished the fruit of the Spirit. We had like one verse left, but I thought I can't teach an hour and a half on one verse. So I felt like we kind of understood the fruit of the Spirit. And so we have three weeks left until Christmas. And I thought, well, what should we talk about over the next few weeks? And since the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people have come up to me and says, Pastor Sean, are we living in the end times? Or, you know, is the end times going to be, you know, right around the corner? And I, and I said, well, it's closer today than it was yesterday. Because would somebody be willing to go close that? You got the door? Okay. So I thought maybe over the next three weeks... We'll talk about issues related to the end times, issues related to the second coming. Um, Some of you have maybe come in here and you weren't expecting. I kind of announced it on Facebook earlier today. Um, But some of us have kind of some preconceived ideas about the end times, about the second coming, about the rapture. Um, I've been studying this stuff since I was in high school. So like back in the the late 80s, everything was really popular with end time stuff. Um, the 70s is when the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey came out. And then I think in the mid-70s was The Thief in the Night. was a Billy Graham movie. I think we watched that at a youth camp and everybody got freaked out and got saved four or five times that night because they were afraid of getting... And then in the late 90s, early 2000s is when the Left Behind books came out. And um, I was a youth pastor in Black Forest, First Baptist Church Black Forest. And one of the kids in my youth group... Um, his dad was the author of the Left Behind series books. And so um, I've been exposed to all different views. And so um, we, we kind of want to go down that trajectory. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named Harold Camping. I'm not sure if you know who Harold Camping is. Um, he's no longer alive, but he was a prophecy teacher on family radio, which was a California-based ministry that would reach you know, thousands of people. Basically, what he did was he predicted that Jesus would come back on May 21st, 2011. Christians would be raptured, and there would be five months of plagues and fire where millions of people would die. And then on October 21st, 2011, the world would finally be destroyed. Now, he had predicted earlier that the end would be on September 6, 1994. His ministry spent $5 million on billboards warning people about the end in 2011. So a lot of his followers began selling their stock portfolios or 401ks, selling their houses, basically getting rid of their retirements because they thought, you know, Harold Camping said this, the end's going to come. Well, on May 21st, 2011, guess what happened? We're still here and nothing happened. Um, so when nothing happened, everybody's like, okay, Harold Camping, what's going on? And what he said was, well, I was a little off. It was a spiritual judgment on America to get ready for the big event. Now, basically his ministry went bankrupt. Many of his followers got upset because they sold everything, lost everything because they thought the end was coming. 
Um, and they accused him of being a cult leader. Now, in private, a few years after that, he admitted that he no longer believed that anyone could really date the second coming or the end of the world. Uh, so to his credit, in March of 2012, he stated that his attempts to predict a date for the end were sinful and that his critics were right for attacking him. Um, and so it's kind of a sad story about somebody who predicted the end, it didn't come true, and made a lot of people mad and lost their money. Now, it's nothing new. I'm going to read my list here, but people have been predicting the second coming since the very beginning. In AD 115, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, this is 115 AD, he was actually a student of John the Apostle, said this, the last times are upon us. A.D. 115. In 180 A.D., Church Father Irenaeus predicted 500 A.D. would be the date of the end. The turn of the century or the turn of the 500 A.D. On December 31st, 999 A.D., not 1999, but 999 A.D., the old Basilica of St. Peter's in Rome was thronged with a mass of weeping and trembling people awaiting the end of the world, thinking that the computers would mess everything up in 999. No, that was 1999. Um, in 1501, Christopher Columbus announced that the end would be in 1656. In 1910, the arrival of Halley's Comet predicted the end also with the World War I looming. 1938, you may have heard of this, Orson Welles became famous with his broadcast on the radio, War of the Worlds. Uh, he was so powerful on the radio. This was kind of before TV was big that everybody listening thought that we were really under attack and the, the world was over. That was in the 1930s. Um, some of you may know famous televangelist Jack Vanapie, Jack and Roxella. Um, they're kind of a funny couple. He's got like white slick back hair and she's blonde and she's always going, oh, Jack, you're so smart, Jack. But anyway, um, he's a televangelist. He chose um, 1976 as the year of the rapture. Then he changed it to 1992, then 1996. Then he moved it to 2012. And I'm really not sure what he's saying today. Um, I'm sure with the COVID thing, I haven't paid attention, but maybe, you know, who, who knows? Um, some of you may remember a famous book that came out in 1988, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. I'm sure that's a big seller today on, on Amazon. Um, left Behind. So I want to challenge some of your thinking tonight because some of you may have grown up with a particular end times view related to the rapture, related to uh, the second coming. Some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about, and you haven't studied these things, and you just know Jesus is going to come back, and I hope I'm ready for him. So, rapture, the word rapture. Um, rapture comes from the Latin word rapio. That's where we get our word rapture. It's kind of an Englishized word from Latin, and it means to be caught up. Now, let me lay my cards on the table tonight. And I want to tell you what I do believe and what I don't believe, okay? Because I want everybody to be clear, okay? Let me first of all tell you what I do not believe the Bible teaches. Now, before we go any further, you are totally fine to disagree with me on the end times. 
We can't be dogmatic because it hasn't happened yet. I would say this. Anybody that's dogmatic on end times and says this is exactly how it's going to be, and it's my way or the highway, and I've got my charts and my graphs, and I've got it figured out to a T, you need to be a little bit careful of that person because I've done an extensive study on this, and there's a lot of questions that the Bible doesn't fully answer. Okay? So this is not in your notes, but you may want to write this down if you are taking notes. You may, and I probably forgot to put this in there. There are four things that we can be dogmatic on, but everything else we can agree to disagree. Okay, so what are these four things? If I had a whiteboard behind me, I'd write it if we were, in the other, if we were back in the youth room. But since we're here in the sanctuary, I don't have a whiteboard. Okay, number one, we have to believe this. And we'll talk about this tonight. But number one, there will be a literal visible, physical second coming of Christ to the earth. We have to believe that. The Bible definitely teaches that. A literal second coming. Okay. Second thing we have to believe, there will be a resurrection of the dead in conjunction with the catching up of the alive, which we're going to talk about tonight. So there's going to be a transformation, a a resurrection. Number three, there's going to be judgment. And number four, there's going to be heaven and hell. There's going to be a final state. The new heavens, the new earth, and hell. Now, those are the four things that we can be absolute on. Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be heaven and hell. Now, the details surrounding the timing, the minute details, we can agree to disagree. Okay? So, my, I do not agree with the popular view. The left-behind view, the popular view that's been popular for maybe about the past 30, 40 years, it's fairly new in theology. So let me tell you what I do not believe, okay? But like I said, you're free to disagree with me. I do not believe in what some people call a secret rapture for the church where Jesus comes back secretly. Only Christians know he's coming back. Christians are caught up. And then there's a seven-year period of tribulation where nobody knows what's going on. And then after the seven-year period of tribulation, Jesus comes back physically to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. Okay, it's called the pre-tribulation rapture. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Or the secret pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, so what I'm going to argue tonight, and this is what I personally believe, and again, you can disagree with me, I believe that the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection or our being caught up to him are a simultaneous back-to-back event that happens at the same time. Okay, so what some people believe is that there's a secret taking up of the church. You know, airplanes are crashing because pilots have been taken up. The guy's out there mowing his lawn. He's been taken up in the lawnmower. Like you've seen in the movies, there's a secret snatching up. Everybody wonders what's going on. There's a seven-year period of tribulation, and then after the seven-year period of tribulation, then Jesus comes back. So really, in that view, there's two comings. There's two second comings. There's a secret coming, and then there's the real second coming. I believe the Bible teaches one coming and one resurrection. Okay? Now, you can agree to disagree, but that's just kind of what I believe. Now, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I want to read it, but before I read it, 
I want to just kind of lay some groundwork because we're kind of coming into the middle of a book. And guys, this is a total shift of gears from the fruit of the Spirit, okay? I figured we'd, do, we'd like totally shift gears and move from the fruit of the Spirit to something a little bit more, I don't know, just as fun, just as exciting. So before we start, what I want to tell you is this, and I think this is the first slide, Trina, we're finally there, <laughs> after a long introduction. I want to first of all mention what Paul does not mention in this text. So what we're going to read here from Paul, Paul does not mention a tribulation. You're not going to find anything about a tribulation in this passage. He does not mention a millennium or a thousand-year reign of Christ. So in the famous passage on what we would call the rapture, there's no mention of a tribulation in this passage by Paul. There's no mention of a thousand-year reign. Now, next week, we'll talk about the thousand years. We're going to go into the book of Revelation next week. As a matter of fact, he doesn't really tell us what happens after Jesus comes back and we meet him in the the clouds in the air. Here's Paul's burden. Paul is answering a question that's different than maybe what we're answering. When it comes to end times, most people want to know, when is it happening? What are the signs of it happening? How can I know when it's going to happen? Give me my charts, give me my graphs, give me all the, give me the newspaper headlines. Let me know the signs of the times. That's not Paul's burden. Okay? Paul is a pastor who founded the church in Thessalonica. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, let's go back there just for just a moment. Before we, I, I said, I'm, I'm getting off script tonight, okay, guys? But just, just bear with me because... It's important sometimes to go back to the book of Acts and see how these churches were planted. So Acts 17 is when Paul and Silas go to the town of Thessalonica, or some people call it Thessalonica, which is the town where the church was that the two books of Thessalonians are written to. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1 Everybody there, Acts 17.1? Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, pay attention to this, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now what are three Sabbath days? Three Saturdays. He went to the synagogue. So he was there how many weeks at this point? Three weeks, Okay. He was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Okay, many scholars believe that Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks. And then what happened? There's a mob riot. 
and he had to skedaddle out of there for fear of his life, go to the next town, Berea. Now, he's there to plant a church. You can only teach so much in three weeks. So he probably, what most scholars believe, is that he probably started to teach them about the end times, but couldn't finish because he had to get out of town. And so there are some people in the church whose loved ones have died. And they're asking the question, where's my loved one? Where do they go? What's the second coming? What happens to me if Jesus comes back? It's more grieving a loved one and unfinished teaching that Paul does this. So ultimately, Paul's aim is not to give a detailed account of the end times. His main goal is to comfort those who are grieving about those that they lost to death. And then he's going to teach us about the second coming, but that's really the issue. So with that as our background, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and let's read verses 13 through 17, and we're going to jump into chapter 5 as well, because in the original writing, they didn't have chapter and verse. It was all just one letter usually written in capital letters, all one. So we have chapter divisions, but it's all one teaching about the second coming. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. Everybody there back in 1 Thessalonians? All right. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede or go first before those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here's Paul's main point. The gospel gives us hope to comfort one another when a Christian loved one dies. The whole point of this is to give hope and encouragement. Now, he does teach about the second coming, but his ultimate point is, I want to encourage you, I want to comfort you. And I guess one of my concerns is, is that a lot of people get their theology from weird sources, they read the newspaper, they watch podcast, listen to podcasts, watch YouTube clips, um, and they get all this information from Facebook or Twitter for social media, and they don't actually read the Bible. Now, Paul's burden here is not to say, hey, look at the events in the Middle East and try to figure things out. He doesn't say, look at Russia and China and these two superpowers that are coming against America. He doesn't say, I'm going to talk to you about an implant chip that's going to come with the vaccine to the virus that's going to be the scanner to be the mark of the beast. He, he doesn't say anything like that. 
What he says is, I want to comfort you, and I want to teach you about what happens when Jesus comes back. Okay? So the text before us has more to do with how do you grieve the death of a loved one than it does with giving us a full-blown teaching on all the things related to the end times. Okay. Now, one of the things that we need to understand is that it's okay to grieve as Christians. I mean, it just keeps coming back. Okay, I've done two funerals in the past month, three weeks. Sunday, what was the beatitude that we dealt with? Blessed are those who weep. Monday morning in our men's study, you guys were there. We talked about Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to weep. So we live in a fallen world where people die, okay, and people grieve. But there's a huge difference between the way a Christian grieves and the way that the world grieves. Because what does Paul say there? Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We have permission to grieve, but we grieve with a confident hope in God's amazing grace in the gospel. Non-believers who don't know the gospel don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they grieve with no hope. We can grieve with hope because we know Jesus. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. You almost wonder if he, a report came back to him while he was writing this with some weird teaching that they, they kind of were a little confused. And Paul's like, I don't want you to be misinformed. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want to give you some clear teaching about the resurrection of the dead, the second coming. Now, Paul uses kind of a weird term there. He says, those who are fallen asleep. When Paul uses the term asleep, it's a metaphor for death. Are you with us, Tarina? Okay, sorry. I know you guys have it on your sheet, but I'm just going to make sure I'm... It's a metaphor for death. Now, some people believe in a doctrine called soul sleep, which... They think that when you die, you kind of like sleep in the ground until the resurrection. You're unconscious and you're sleeping. The Bible says your soul goes immediately to be with Jesus. Asleep is a metaphor. It's not literally when you die, you're asleep. It's just Paul's way of saying those who have died. Okay? Those who have died. So it's a metaphor for death. So we can grieve those who've died, but we grieve with hope. Now, why? Verse 14 is the key to this entire text. And it gives us the foundation or the assurance of our hope. Why? What's our basis for our hope? Why can we grieve as those who do have hope? Well, what does Paul say? For, here's the reason why, for, since we believe, what? That Jesus died and rose again. What's the hope? The hope is the, basically the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we believe this. We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. So this 
confidence, this hope that we have in our grieving comes in our confession of the faith of the gospel. So what is the foundational belief? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the greatest news we could ever hear. And it should never get old. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4? He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, that I preached to you, which you received, and which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to what I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And, and here's the content. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Let's just stop right there. There's a lot of things that Paul said that were important, that are true. But when he says, I'm going to give you something that's of first importance, what is that, Paul, that's of first importance that he's going to tell us? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the reason that we have hope in grieving the death of a loved one is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel gives us hope. It's the most important. It's of first importance. It is the foundation of everything. The world doesn't have that hope. We do. Okay? Now, what's Jesus going to do? Verse 14. We believe Jesus died and rose again. We have this confession in the gospel even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. God will, through Jesus, bring those who are dead. Now, what in the world does it mean that the dead would be brought? Does that mean that they're going to be brought back to earth? And if so... They don't have a body yet because their souls are in heaven. Now, this word bring in the Greek language can also mean lead. So what I think Paul's saying here is that Jesus is going to bring the dead bodies out of their graves and reunite them with their souls. This is the resurrection of the dead the supernatural reunion between body and soul. Okay, so let's just stop. When a person that's in Christ, a believer, dies, their soul, the immaterial part of them, goes directly to be with Jesus. Where does their body go? On Saturday, I laid a dear brother into the ground in a, in a, in a coffin. Where does the body go? It goes into the ground. At the resurrection, what happens? Your body is raised and it's reunited with your soul. And don't ask me how it works because it's supernatural. It's miraculous. But there is a reuniting between body and soul where you get a new body, a resurrected body like Jesus' body when he rose from the dead. So you will live in heaven with a resurrected body. You're not going to be like Casper the Friendly Ghost, bouncing around on clouds, playing harps, or like a little baby in diapers like you see on Tom and Jerry theology. You're going to have a real body in a real heaven and a real earth with the real Christ who has risen from the dead. Now, why were these 
Thessalonians grieving. They're grieving. What did they not understand about their dead loved ones? Paul has to inform them. Okay, so here's what they're thinking. Grandma Eloise died. What happened to her? Well, I see her again. Where is she? What, what if I missed the second coming and it already happened? And so I'm kind of grieving because I don't know what, happened. I don't know what happens when my, when my loved one dies. Now, first of all, these, these are Gentiles. Okay, this is a Gentile church. They don't have a lot of background in the teachings of the Old Testament. Okay? So the Old Testament does teach about the resurrection of the dead. As a matter of fact, when I teach my Old Testament class at Colorado Christian University, one of the questions on the final is, discuss the nature of the resurrection from the Old Testament. There's verses in Isaiah and Psalms and Daniel that talk about the resurrection from the dead. So it's taught in the Old Testament. But these Gentiles didn't know their Old Testament very well. And secondly, as I said earlier, we must assume that even within the three short weeks that Paul was there, he must have taught them something about the future resurrection of the dead. But maybe not everything. We really don't know why they're grieving. Maybe they feared their dead loved ones would miss out on the second coming and not get to experience it. So here's the bottom line. They did not allow their confession or their belief system to undergird or inform their current reaction in grief to the loss of loved ones. Isn't that true a lot of times? You know in your heads about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the hope you have in salvation, but sometimes it hasn't moved down into your heart. And so sometimes when you go through a time of grieving, you get confused about some things that the Bible teaches because you're not really clearly thinking, you're grieving, you're sorry, all, all these things are happening. So we really don't know why. But Paul's main aim in this passage is to bring comfort to grieving Christians and to clarify their misunderstanding. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, and, and, I, and it's okay to grieve, but, but grieve as though you have hope. So in verses 15 through 17, he provides clear instructions on what is going to happen and the order it's going to happen. The order is important. Okay? And notice what Paul says here. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord. In other words, Paul's not making this up. This is something that comes from the Lord. Now, where did Paul get this? Paul spent three years in the desert of Arabia being taught by Jesus. So it could be that Jesus taught Paul this directly, or it could be that Paul got instructions supernaturally from the Holy Spirit. We really don't know, but Paul's like, I'm not making this stuff up. This is coming directly from the Lord. Now, a lot of what Paul teaches here is almost exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus and his disciples are on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him about the end times. And Jesus himself gives teaching on the end times. And there's a lot of parallels, and I'll show you as we go along. A lot of the things that Jesus taught in Matthew 24, Paul teaches here. Okay? So, 
What's teaching number one? Those who have died will go before those who are still alive at the coming of the Lord. This is the order of things. There's a sequence. Notice what Paul says. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. So who goes first? Those who are dead will come out of their graves first at the resurrection, be resurrected with their new bodies, reunited to their souls. Now, that would bring great hope to these people that are asking, what happened to Aunt Millie? What happened to Aunt, you know, Uncle, Hes- Uncle Hezekiah? Or I'm trying to think of a Jewish name. What happened? Well, Paul says, stop. Don't worry. Don't grieve. They're not going to miss out. As a matter of fact, because they've died in Christ, they get the honor of going first. They're going to get resurrected from their grace. Now, I've had people ask this question. What about cremation? And here's what I say. What's the composition of a body that's been in the grave for a thousand years if you were to open up that coffin? It's going to be dust. It's almost going to look like, okay, what happens to the person that dies at sea? Their body's decomposed by barnacles and other things that eat out at the bottom of the ocean. What about somebody who was burned in a fire? Or, or, or a bomb detonated and they got blown in, this is kind of graphic, but they, their body parts get blown across, you know, a field. Or back in the ancient days when you were drawn and quartered. Okay, here's the point. The point is not so much, okay, what happens to those people? The point is, no matter what happens, it's miraculous that your body gets back with your soul in this new glorified body. Again, don't tell me how it happens. It's miraculous. It's supernatural. It's something that God does. And we'll, we'll read some verses here in a moment. Okay, so Paul says, listen, those who are dead have a place of honor. They get to go first. Now, I want to talk about the key word here. The coming of the Lord. The coming. That's where we get the word, the second coming. Why do we call it? Now, it doesn't say the second coming. Why do we call it the second coming? Because we're get, we, we, we started Advent this last Sunday, right? There's Advent candles right there. What's Advent mean? Coming, arriving. What's the first coming of Jesus? Bethlehem, when he was born of a virgin. Okay, So it doesn't say second coming, it just says the coming. So this is a key Greek word, parousia. You guys can all say that with me, parousia. It can mean either an arrival or merely just the appearing or the presence of the Lord. Now, we see the same word used in Matthew 24, 3 when Jesus teaches about his own second coming. Matthew 24, 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? Same Greek word, parousia, and the end of the age. Now, the question by the disciples was... Two, what's the sign of your coming? And what's the, when's the end of the age? And Jesus kind of gives a detailed answer. Now, that word parousia, coming, arrival, 
it had a very significant meaning in that ancient culture that Paul is writing to. So here's something very important about Bible study, guys and gals. Oftentimes, we want to jump to what a word means in English to us that we're familiar with and make that the meaning versus understanding what it meant to the original audience. So we've got to find out, as Paul is writing to this ancient audience in Thessalonica, what would that word have meant to them? And that gives us a clue into what he's talking about. So in that ancient culture, it was used of the arrival or coming or visit of an important official or a dignitary or a king to a city. Okay, so when a king or a governor or somebody in a high position would go visit a city, the city would get ready. They would make preparation with banquets, games. They would do all this work to honor their arrival. Sometimes they would even mint coins to commemorate the king as he was coming to their city. So in other words, when a king or a dignitary arrived or came or made his presence known in a city, it was a huge, public, festive, loud event where everyone knew the king was coming. The king wouldn't come in quietly. Now, I'm not saying anything about either president here, but can you picture Donald Trump entering anything quietly? No, he wants people to know he's there. When he had those big rallies, you know, so... Back then, it was not secret, it was not hidden. You wanted to make a huge deal that the king was coming. Everybody in the city knew he was arriving. So in that culture, the word coming never meant anything secret or hidden. It always meant the whole town knew he was coming, it was loud, it was festive, we're putting a party together, we're honoring the arrival, the coming of this king. So let me just lay my cards out on the table again. I do not believe in a secret coming of Christ for the church. Now, the Bible only knows of one day of the Lord. And we'll talk about that when we get into chapter 5. You never find in the Bible the days of the Lord. So what's the day of the Lord? Is it a secret coming and then a seven year and then another coming? Are there two days of the Lord? Or is there one day of the Lord? Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Concerning that day. That day. Not days. Now, I want you to look down to chapter 5, verse 2. We'll get there in just a moment. But, um, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, chapter 5, verse 2. Well, let's wait. Let's wait. Actually, what I really want you to go to is, oh, I'm sorry. What I really want you to go to is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Just turn over 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. What does Paul say? Now concerning the coming of the Lord, same Greek word, parousia, and are being gathered together to him. We ask you, I'm going to turn the page here, not to be quickly sh shaken in mind or alarmed. 
Paul links the coming of the Lord with our being gathered to him as one event. So this word coming, perusia, the coming of the Lord, means that Jesus will be revealed, he will be disclosed, he will appear in the heavens, and everyone will see him. I actually had this question asked. Will those who are in South Asia in a different time zone that are 11 and a half hours away, will they see him first? Will he come at the prime meridian? Will he, where, will he come at, I mean, like, you know when an eclipse comes, you have to be at certain places to see an eclipse? Uh, remember like a few years ago when that eclipse came and everybody went over to NJC and they all wore their, some people wore their um, welding helmets and you could go down to Georgia and Tennessee and see it better? Okay, again, I don't think it matters, like, spatially or geometrically or or whatever. The point is, it's supernatural. Everybody's going to see him. I don't think it's going to be like Jesus comes back and then the reports happen on the newscasts in China, and then we have to wait. Oh, well, he's not here yet. We're going to have to wait like 10 hours. I think it's going to happen all at once. Okay? So Matthew 24, 30 through 31. I don't think it's going to be secret, because listen to what Jesus says. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Okay, what do you see in this passage of Scripture? Jesus coming in power and glory. Is it loud? There's a trumpet call. What's happening is Jesus is coming. He's sending his angels to do what? Gather his elect. Okay? Jesus links his coming with the gathering as one event. Now, non-believers will see Jesus coming, and how will they respond? They will mourn. Revelation 1, 7 says this, Behold, He's coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. So, when somebody talks about the second coming, You've got Jesus saying that it's loud and everybody will see him. You've got John in Revelation saying every eye will see him. And you have Paul here saying it's the coming of the Lord. So again, I don't think it's a secret event that nobody's going to really know what happened. Where people are going to be raptured out and it's going to be secret and people are like, what in the world's going on? Now, Paul says that the Lord's coming down from heaven will involve three very loud, loud occurrences. Okay? So he goes overboard to say these, this is loud. If it's loud, is it secret? When you think of loud, what do you think of? Like, I don't know what, what happened. Like around graduation time this summer, like back in May at the, at the end of the school year, 
because there wasn't a ceremony, I was out in my front yard mowing the lawn, and, and all these people, all these cars just drove by honking and honking. I'm like, what? And like long train. So it was like our neighborhood was like loud because people were honking and hooping and hollering, and then they were setting off fireworks. And somebody's still setting off fireworks. Every holiday, they set them off on, they set them off on um, Halloween. They set them off on Thanksgiving. I'm waiting for them to set them off on Christmas Eve. They must have had stuff left over for 4th of July. It's loud. Okay, it's not secret. It's loud. Okay, what are these three loud events? Okay, first of all, let's look. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, here's the first, with the cry of command. The cry of command. Not a whisper, not something secret, but a loud cry, a shout. John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. They'll hear his voice. So, I want you to think about it. Nobody's going to not know what's happening. The cry of command. Who, this is kind of scary for non-believers. For the Christian we're going to hear Jesus' voice for the first time with the cry of command. I'm not sure what he's going to say. I'm here. Well, how are people in Chinese going to understand it if he speaks in English? Again, guys, it's miraculous. It's, we're going to know it. Okay, so the first thing is a loud shout, a cry. Okay, that's loud. That's not secret. Okay, second, the voice of the archangel. Not only is Jesus going to cry out, but there's going to be accompanied by the voice of the archangel. Now, we kind of get some clues if you go back to Daniel chapter 10 and to the book of Jude. This is probably Michael. Michael, There's only two um, angels that are given a proper name, a title in the Bible. It's, that's Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel's the angel who appeared to uh, Mary and Zechariah during the birth of Jesus. Michael is considered the archangel. So most people believe it's probably going to be Michael, the archangel, who's also going to accompany this loud shout. And if that weren't loud enough, okay, Jesus is shouting. The archangel's shouting. In case that's not loud enough, what's the third thing? The sound of the trumpet of God. A trumpet. Now, we don't quite understand. When you think of a trumpet, it's not like a jazz band. It's not like this little cheesy like little riff. Back then, a trumpet in that culture was used to sound the alarm to get everybody's attention. Kind of like the tornado sirens we have that go off every Friday at noon in the summertime just as they test them. But like if it's, if it's 5 o'clock and you see a dark sky out there and you, those sirens go off, okay, we're under tornado warning. It's an alarm. It's a blaring trumpet. This comes from the Old Testament. Joel 2.1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. The day of the Lord. Not days. The one day of the Lord is coming. Then what's that day accompanied with? A trumpet. What's Jesus' second coming accompanied with? A trumpet. Matthew 24.31, we just read this, but let's read it again. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, 
and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Now, Jesus says he'll send out his angels. So maybe Michael and archangels, archangel and angels out with a trumpet. So let me just ask you a question. The voice of Jesus, the voice of the archangels, the trumpet. Is there anything quiet, silent, secret about this at all? I don't think so. Is everybody going to be wondering with their heads scratched, like, what's going on here? Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52 gives us some other teaching that parallels this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What does that change? What does that change look like? It's the resurrection of our bodies. And how quick is it? The twinkling of an eye. I don't know how many milliseconds that is, but like that. A miraculous transformation. It's loud. It involves a trumpet call. It involves a resurrection. It involves a change. It's supernatural. Now, this is all related to the dead in Christ. Because remember, they're going first. This is the glorious resurrection of the dead. This is the hope that we have that all of our loved ones who have died in Christ will rise out of their tombs, be reunited with their souls, and receive their glorified bodies. They will be changed in an instant. Those who are dead will be changed. Now, in verse 17, Paul gets to, if you're still alive when this happens, if you're still alive on earth when the second coming happens, what happens to you? Because you're not dead yet. You get to go second. Now, in, in terms of like how the sequence, like I'm not sure if like everybody that's alive is waiting around to see all the dead people coming up or if, like if it's a split second. Again, it hasn't happened yet, so I don't know all the details. All I know is Paul just says the dead in Christ go first because they have the honor. They've already died in Christ. You who are alive, you wait your turn, okay? And then God's going to do something to you. So what happens next? He says there in verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. We will be caught up to join those who've gone first. Now, the word caught up is Latin. The Latin version of that's where we get the word rapture. The Greek word's harpazo. It means to be snatched to be translated or to be grabbed. You think about Enoch in Genesis 5, 24. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. There were two people in the Old Testament that never experienced death. Do you remember who they were? Enoch. He just kept walking with God and walking with God, and eventually God just took him to heaven. He never died. And then Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. He was taken up. Okay? So again, the word rapture comes from the Latin translation of the text. Now, unless you don't think I believe in a quote-unquote rapture, let me tell you what I think the Bible teaches. 
If by rapture you mean a secret, silent coming for the church where only Christians know what's going on or taken up and everybody's left, and then after seven years Jesus then comes back, I don't think the Bible teaches that. But I do believe that those who are still alive will be caught up. If you want to call it raptured, caught up, whatever word you want to use. But again, I believe that the second coming and the rapture slash resurrection, I think they're two different things, the resurrections of the dead, a raptures of the catching up, because those who are dead go first, I think it's a simultaneous back-to-back event. So think about it this way. Rapture is not a removal out of tribulation. Does Paul mention anything here about tribulation, being removed out of tribulation? It's not a removal, but a reunion. Who are you being reunited with? Your loved ones that you lost. Because what does it say there? We'll be caught up together with them. Who's them? The dead that have, been, that have gone first. And we're both going to be together. The dead that have gone first, those of us who are alive, we're reunited together in the clouds to meet Christ. Now, what does it mean that we will meet the Lord in the air? Now, some we're going up, right? We're going to meet him in the air because it says he's coming back in the clouds. We meet him in the clouds. Now, the word meet, meet him, has significant meaning. Kind of back with that culture. Remember what the word coming meant? You had a big festive gathering to get your city ready, and then when the king came in, you made big fanfare when he was coming. Okay, to meet in that culture, it's a little bit similar. It was used in that culture of the custom of sending a delegation to go outside of the city to greet or meet the dignitary and then escort them back into the city. Think of it this way. If the king is coming, does everybody run out there and meet him and bring him back into the city? No, you send a delegation of officials. They say, king, we're glad you're here at our city. We've come out to meet you. Now come back to the city with us. Come for the fanfare. Now, here's what this verse doesn't tell us. It doesn't say where we go afterwards. Okay, read it. Does it tell you? It says, we will meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. We will meet the Lord in the air. Okay, does that mean that we go up to heaven? We come back down to earth? What, what, what do we do? Here's the point. The point is, Paul does not give us a burden as to like the millennium or all these different things. His point is to cover grieving, grieving people. Here's the point for me. I don't care where we go as long as you're with Jesus. What's the point? The point is, you will always be with the Lord. So whether we go to heaven with Jesus, whether we come back to earth to Jesus, whether he takes us on a fun ride somewhere, I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious, but the point is, it doesn't matter where we go as long as we're with Jesus. Now, we're going to meet Jesus where? In the air, in the clouds. How did Jesus leave this earth when he went back up to heaven? In the clouds. And remember when he went up, the men looked and said, What's going on? Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11, what do they say? 
And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, that's Jesus, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, and these are probably angels, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come in the clouds. We're going to meet him in the air. Now, clouds. If you, if you know your Old Testament, the cloud is not just some puffy things in the air. The clouds are symbolic in the Old Testament for God's glory. Remember the glory cloud in the tabernacle? Even the cloud enveloped Mount Sinai. A pillar of cloud to lead them during the day. In Exodus 16, God's glory appeared on the mountain. Psalm 104, God's glory would come on the clouds. So when Paul uses here the air, the clouds, it's not just like, okay, we're going to kind of be up in the clouds. It's more of a powerful way of saying, we are going to experience the full glory of God in Christ. Now remember Moses. Remember back in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses says, God, I got a big request for you. Show me all your glory. And God says, you can't handle the truth. And says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass by. And you can't see my full glory. When Jesus comes back, we will see him in his full glory. Eye to eye, face to face. Not like Moses who was in the cleft of the rock who couldn't see. Because what does 1 John 3, 2 say? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Wow. Number one, we'll be like him, because we'll have a resurrected body, and then we'll be able to see him as he is in all of his full glory. And we won't burn up, we won't incinerate, we won't freak out. It'll be a joyous reunion. Now, does Paul here say, get out your charts and graphs and start getting the intricate details, find the YouTube channels, go listen to Harold Camping Radio? How does he end this teaching? Look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Comfort one another. This is not Bible trivia to fill your heads with. The second coming is meant to bring encouragement. Because let's talk about the Christian life for a moment. Even if you don't lose a loved one, can the Christian life be discouraging? And kind of despairing at times, sad, frustrated. And you don't want to go through the Christian life alone. We were meant to be there for each other. And so what Paul's saying is, listen, part of the way we encourage one another, part of the way we walk with one another as Christians is that we've got to remind each other that we have a hope. Jesus is our king. Those that have died in Christ are going to rise first. We're going to see him as he is. We've got a great future. So what do we need to keep reminding ourselves of? Revelation 21, 3 through 5. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So if you want a very specific, practical way to encourage other believers when things get tough, when things get depressing, when you get frustrated, when you get lonely, when you get sad, Paul says, listen, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, our being caught up to him is a means for us to give each other hope. Now, as we move into chapter 5, Paul's going to shift gears because this section in chapter 4 is geared towards believers, our hope, our future. As we move into chapter 5, he's going to keep addressing the second coming, but now he's going to shift to judgment and wrath for those who are not ready for the second coming. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. For the believer, the second coming is a day of joy. The day of the Lord is anticipation. It's our blessed hope. We wait for it. We long for it. We get to see Jesus as he is. We long for the cry of the command of the archangel and the trumpet of God. It's a great thing. But for the lost person, the unsaved person, that day of the Lord, that coming of Christ is a day of dread and fear and trembling because judgment is coming. Now let's go into chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11. Because Paul is continuing this, this um, theme, this flow of thought related to the second coming. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And there, here it is again. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So here's the point. The point that we looked at before in chapter 4 was to encourage those who are grieving the loss of a loved one with the second coming, the hope in the gospel. Here's Paul's point in these verses. It's still about encouragement, but we must encourage one another to be ready for Christ's return. Now, this passage is divided into three primary sections. So let's deal with all three of them. Here's the first. It's in verses 1 through 3. First of all, Paul's going to give a warning to unbelievers. Unbelievers will not be able to escape the judgment of Christ's return. 
unbelievers will not be able to escape the judgment of Christ's return. Paul says, I'm not gonna, it's not my burden to give you times and seasons. You, you, don't need to know, you don't need to understand stuff like that. Because what you know is that that day, that coming is going to come like a thief in the night. So what Paul does here is he gives two vivid metaphors about the second coming. One, it's going to come like a thief in the night. Number two, it's going to come like labor pains on a pregnant woman. Okay, never been pregnant. My wife's had two kids. Very distinctly remember, I can't remember if it was Aiden or Zach, but I do remember water didn't break, but Dawn turned to me in the bed. She says, it's time to go. <laughs> and so the labor pains were there, and she's like, we've we got to get in the car and go. So it came upon her. Like two minutes earlier, it wasn't there. Those labor pains come. A thief in the night, do you know when somebody's going to steal, a, your, you know, break into your house? So those are two metaphors. Now, I want you to notice what Paul calls it. Does Paul call it the second coming in verse 2? What does he call it? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. So let me ask you a question. Is the second coming the day of the Lord? Yes. Is the day of the Lord the second coming? Okay. Think about it this way. I think the second coming is more, the term the second coming is geared more towards Christians to give us hope that Jesus is coming back. It's kind of, the second coming is more of a hopeful, joyful word towards believers. The day of the Lord is the flip side of that. It's the same day, but it's more that warning of judgment that the day is coming, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. So when the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord and the second coming, think of two sides of the same coin. The second coming, the day of the Lord, it's the same event. It's just for believers, it's the coming of Christ. For unbelievers, it's the day of judgment. It's the day of the Lord. And that was often used in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. Amos chapter 5, 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. <laughs> or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? How does the Old Testament describe the day of the Lord? Judgment. Joel 1.15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Now, the day of the Lord and the second coming are the same thing, but the day of the Lord stresses more the judgment. Titus 2, 13 through 14. For the Christian, we're waiting for our blessed hope. What's that? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. For the Christian, the second coming is the blessed hope that we're waiting for. For the non-Christian, they could care less. But when it comes, it's too late. So, the first metaphor that Paul uses here is that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. A thief in the night. Now, Jesus 
mentions this in Matthew 24. Again, remember, a lot of the parallel teachings that we find here in Paul, Jesus teaches in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 43 through 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let him in his house to be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Do you know when Jesus is coming back? No. Will it be unexpected? Yes. Now, are there signs that we can look at? Yes, but can we be absolutely adamant that we know the date, the time, the hour? Can we set dates like these people have? 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus says the day of the Lord's like a thief. Paul says it comes like a thief. Peter says it comes like a thief. People are saying there's peace, there's security. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, because they'd never seen a boat. <laughs> Noah's building a boat for 120 years and people walk by and like, what are you building? There's a stuff called rain that's coming and it's going to come real bad and flood. Okay, okay, Noah, we'll get back to you. In the days before the flood, what were people doing? Eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the cunning of the Son of Man. So first metaphor that Paul uses and the Bible uses is that coming of Jesus will be like a thief. And the, the metaphor, so for those that weren't in the boat with Noah, the ark, what happened to them? They were destroyed in judgment. Okay, so this is a warning to those that don't know Christ. Now, the second image he uses is of a woman, a pregnant woman in labor pains. Notice what Paul says, though. He makes it very clear at the end of verse 3. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They won't escape. Where will they go when Jesus comes back? As a matter of fact, turn in your Bibles real quick. I didn't put this in my notes, but um, go to Revelation chapter 6 for just a minute. And then we'll come back to 1 Thessalonians. But go to, go to Revelation chapter 6 for a minute. Look at verse 12 of Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? 
The great day of wrath has come. What are they doing? I'd rather hide in a cave and have a rock fall on me than to have to face Jesus. So they will not escape that day that comes like a pregnant woman in labor pains or a thief in the night. They will not escape the wrath to come. Isaiah 13, 6-8. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. Wail. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will become aflame. Even the Old Testament talks about the day of the Lord coming like labor pains on a woman. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen and exposed. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So this first three verses are a warning to unbelievers that the second coming for Christians is a great day of joy. It's a blessed hope. For the unbeliever, it will come when they least expect it, like a thief in the night. It will come like labor pains on a woman, and they will not escape the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Now, with that being said, Paul goes back to Christians and says, okay, Christians, you don't know when Jesus is coming back. And you know that you'll get to go to heaven when he comes back. And those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and you who are still alive will be caught up in the air. Those that are unbelievers will not escape. But here's another question. Okay. How do you live in the meantime as you wait for the second coming? So in verses 4 through 7, Paul gives this instructions. We should be alert and self-controlled in preparation for Christ's return. Alert and self-controlled. Notice the contrast in verse 4. But you, unbelievers are not going to escape, but you, Christians, you're not in darkness, brothers. You're not going to be surprised by this like a thief. When Jesus comes back, you're going to know. You're going to be ready. Why? Because you are of the light. You're children of the light. You're children of the day. So, he gives these two different opposites, darkness versus light, sober versus drunkenness. Darkness versus light, drunkenness versus being sober. We are children of the day, children of the light. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're no longer in spiritual darkness. We're no longer children of the night. We are children of the day. We are to shine like stars. We are to be different than the world. Um, Paul says in Philippians 2, 15 through 16, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you want, you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
that in the day of Christ, when Jesus comes back, you're, you're shining his lights, you're, you're, you're living a life of, of, that glorifies him. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Paul says there's two things that happen at night. Sleeping and drunkenness. Now, there's nothing wrong with sleeping at night. I think everybody wants a good night's sleep. So there's nothing inherently evil about sleeping at night. That's not Paul's point. He's he's not saying don't sleep because we need to be sleeping to be healthy. What he's saying is that as Christians, metaphorically speaking, we don't want to act in a way that we're living in darkness and we're living in spiritual drunkenness. Okay, so what happens if you're living in spiritual darkness? Your eyes aren't focused on Christ. What happens if you're living in spiritual drunkenness? You're, you're not attuned to what's going on around you. Um, so we need to be sober. Notice what he says there. Verse 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. He uses that word twice, sober. It really means self-controlled. In the sense that we are morally pure and ready for the second coming. We haven't stained our lives with unrepentant sin. It's this whole idea. So, so I could distill it down to this. When it comes to the second coming, there's just two things. Watch and be ready. Watch and be ready. Stay awake and be sober. Again, back to Matthew. The Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 42-44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. Didn't we already read this? If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not let the house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. The same thing about the thief. Be ready. Stay awake. Paul says it in Romans 13, 12-14. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I hope we're going to finish. Um, So the third section here is verses 8 through 11, where we are to constantly remind one another of the gospel. Okay? It's interesting, in verse 8, he talks about like the armor of God, but not the full armor of God that he teaches in Ephesians chapter 6. What does he say here? Put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. There's only two pieces, breastplate and helmet, but notice the triplicate favorite of Paul, faith, hope, and love. Now, this is not the full-blown teaching on the, on the, um, the armor of God. He just has two things there, but... Um, the way that it's worded in here is it's really, in the Greek text, indicates that these things are done for us in grace. God's the one that gives us these things. God puts this armor on us. God clothes us in this. Um, This goes back to Isaiah 59, 16 through 17. So the armor of God passage goes back to 59, 16, and 17. And I want you to notice the wording. 
Okay, so in, it's very interesting, in Paul's teaching about the armor of God, who puts on the armor? We put on the armor. Let's read Isaiah 59 and let's find out who puts on the armor. He, this is God, the Lord saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. God's the one that puts on the armor in the Old Testament. So ultimately, God gives us the armor of God. It's a whole other teaching we can go into, but Paul kind of introduces it here again. The way that you stay sober, the way that you stay alert, the way that you stay ready for Christ is you put on the full armor of God. You walk in the day. You be sober-minded. You're self-controlled. If you remember two weeks ago, the last of the fruit of the Spirit we talked about was self-control. Okay. Now, verse 9 talks about what we're not destined for. God has not destined us for what? Wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why has God not destined us for wrath? Because before the foundation of the world, He chose you to be saved. He will keep you eternally saved to the end. He will hold you tightly in His grip. There's no way in heaven that a true believer will ever experience the wrath of God. Now, the unbeliever will on the day of the Lord. But we will not. What will we receive? Salvation. And just for the sake of time, I may skip past some of these verses. You guys know Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ and all that kind of stuff. So, what is the second coming of Christ or the day of wrath for those who have not trusted in Christ? It's a day of wrath. And there's some verses there. Let's just look at um, Romans 2, 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the day of the Lord is the same thing as the day of wrath is the same thing as the second coming. Now, verse 10 is the hope in the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus. Look at verse 10. He... We've obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus who died for us so that whether awake or asleep, we might live with him. He died for us. So because Jesus died for us, because God has not destined us for wrath, because he saved us, for us, the second coming is a day of joy. It's a day of hope. It's a day of blessing. For the unsaved person who has not believed in the death of Christ, who has not trusted in Jesus, who lives in unrepentance, it's going to be a day of wrath. Now, what's going to sustain you as you wait for the second coming? What's going to help you remain pure and alert and sober-minded, a child of the day? What's going to sustain you is focusing on the gospel. That you're not destined for wrath, because Jesus died for you, you're destined for salvation. Notice what Paul doesn't say. 
Paul doesn't say, hey, Philippi, or Philippians, hey, Thessalonians, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Try really hard and hunker down. And as you wait for Jesus to come back, busy yourself with all types of religious activity so you can wear yourselves out. Try to be really religious, and then maybe you'll have a fighting chance to come, somehow make it when I come back. No, he emphatically says, Jesus died for you. You're not destined for wrath. You're destined for salvation. It's all about the gospel. Put on the breastplate. Put on the helmet. And what does he say in verse 11? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Go back up to verse 18 of chapter 4. How does he end the first section? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How does he end the second section? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. So it's very interesting to me that twice Paul gives an admonition and encouragement here to build up, to encourage, and it's all about the second coming. So here's an interesting question. When was the last time you encouraged another Christian by talking about the second coming? We don't often think about that, do we? But what do we need to remind ourselves of? You have a breastplate. You have a helmet. You're not destined for wrath. You're a child of God. Jesus died in your place. You have salvation. You will be caught up with him in the air. You will live forever with Jesus. You belong to the day. You're a child of the day. He's taken you out of the kingdom of darkness. He's placed you in the kingdom of light. We're saved by grace. We're loved by God. We have a relationship with Christ that can never be taken away from us. And he will guarantee that on that day we'll see him face to face. We will be in heaven. We will be with Jesus forever. Encourage one another with that. And I don't know about you, but when we start to encourage one another with that, it gets us encouraged because where's our focus? It's on Jesus. It's on heaven. It's on our true home. You know, we can get so wrapped up with the things that are down here that our, our, our minds and our hearts get, get cloudy and get, get distracted. And sometimes we just need another Christian brother or sister to come up and say, you're not going to hell, brother. <laughs> you're going to heaven. Jesus is coming back. Those that have died that you've loved, they're going first. You're going to be caught up in the air. We're going to be together with Jesus. We have salvation. I want to encourage you with that today. Let's look forward to that day. And so that's really Paul's burden, not to get out the charts and graphs and map, map out all the end times. It's more for encouragement. So that's all I have tonight in the five minutes we have left. So do you guys have any questions or comments as we think about these passages of Scripture? Yes, Shana. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Okay, so when we get to Revelation, and you, so sometimes the, the, the Bible uses like code language or language to distinguish between believers and non-believers. So especially in Revelation, the repeated phrase in Revelation is those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers. Those are non-believers, those of the world. The, the nations of the earth, the kings and all, that's, that's really to distinguish from believers. Because later on in that verse, I think he says he sends his angels to gather the elect from the four winds of heaven. 
So you got God's elect, you got God's chosen people, you got believers versus the tribes of the earth or the people of the earth or you know those that those that are focus is on the earth, they're worldly because they've not trusted in Christ. Does, does that make sense, Shauna? The tribes of the earth would be those that are wailing are not going to be believers. Those are like non-believers, but the tribes of the earth is mainly to make it universal that it's going to be all over the world. That these people are going to, that don't, even in Revelation 1, 7, I think it says, even those that pierced him will wail on account of him when they see him. There is no reason whatsoever that a believer should cry and wail and moan when Jesus returns. A true believer. Because it's the most joyous thing we're waiting for. It's the blessed hope. Any other questions? Yes, Dennis. That other view, you mean? Yeah, like the dispensational view is what you're saying? Yeah, the dispensational view would say there's a secret coming that happens at any time, gets the church out of the way so that God can kind of work with the Jewish nation, and then there's real events that you can look at and see in history that you know, line up in the seven years, and then once these things are fulfilled, then we know at the end of that seven-year period, then Jesus will come back um, literally this time. The first time, he, the first time he came, but he didn't really, he came for his, secretly for his church, and the second time he's really coming. And so the reason I kind of have difficulty with that, because it really gives, it divides up what I think the Bible teaches is the day of the Lord is the day of the Lord. The coming is the coming. There, there, it's not divided up. And it almost makes it sound like there's two different comings. There's the, the rapture, which is, would really be the second coming, and then there's the third coming, if you kind of want to look at it that way. The, the first one's secret, but it's still Jesus coming to capture those out. That's kind of, the, that's kind of what they're... They, but they would say those signs and all those things happen during the seven-year tribulation. The Christians, in that view, the Christians will be raptured, and everybody will be left behind. And so people will find, in that view, like the question is, how do people become Christians during that time? Well, they believe like Jewish people will come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah and they'll kind of get saved and then there'll be people that will find their grandma's Bible and read it and there'll be people that will get saved during that tribulation, but there's nobody there to really tell them about unless you believe in a literal, I'm getting kind of off track here, you believe in a literal Elijah and Moses that come back and start telling people about Jesus and that's a whole other. I didn't give that other view because I don't hold to it, and it's kind of, yeah. I wanted to stick with First Thessalonians. All right, what time is it? It's past time. Let's pray. Go get your kids. Father, thank you for this time that we have tonight. Uh, Lord, help us to realize that this passage of Scripture is for our encouragement, uh, our personal encouragement, Lord, just about your second coming, but also to encourage others. And so, Lord, help us this week. Um, if we're grieving, if we're, we're frustrated, if we long for your return. Help us to encourage another believer, another brother and sister in Christ with these things, um, as Paul has admonished us to do. And thank you, Jesus, that you are coming back. We look forward to seeing you face to face in all of your glory. And as Paul says in the book of, of Corinthians, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. And we ask this in Jesus' name.